0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. of Surety Today. I apologize for the technical difficulties resulting in a delay. I'm Rich Pledger, a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Practice Group at Wright Robinson. I'm sorry, Wright Constable and Skeen's Richmond office. Uh, we thank you for taking a moment out of your day and continuing support of Surety Today. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. We also ask that you like or share our Surety Today posts on your social media platforms remember you can listen to any one of the, or all of the prior 75 or so episodes of surety today anytime anywhere from any one or of our multiple platforms on surety today page our, our website www.wcslaw.com at a podcast at Spotify Amazon music Apple podcast fixer or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today, and our microsite at suretytoday.net. The title of our presentation today is CGL and other insurance sources of recovery for the surety. Please note, or I should say, I have tried to mute the line during the presentation to avoid background noise. Um, if there's too much background noise, please speak up and let me know. As we all know, a surety has several tools available to try and reduce and or recover its losses when satisfying payment and performance on claims. These tools or sources may include exoneration and indemnification, subrogation, assignments. However, the rights and remedies available using these tools may not be sufficient if the principal and indemnitors have insufficient financial wherewithal. Thus, the surety may need to look to other sources. Other possible targets for recovery include subcontractors and suppliers, design professionals, accountants. Note that there are often issues the surety may confront when pursuing design professionals or accountants due to the lack of privity of contract and the economic loss rule, which prevents third parties from recovering damages under negligence theories based entirely on economic losses. However, the issues may be sidesteps when the surety steps into the shoes of the obligee or the principal as the case may be and is subrogated to the right to bring claims of negligence and breach of contract against the design professional or accountant. And a lot of that can be accomplished through uh, assignments when resolving claims and or settling. Uh, another source is lenders. Now this is a topic for a podcast in its own right, something that may occur soon. There is currently a case pending before the Supreme Court of Virginia where the surety is challenging the principal's bank for sweeping its principal's accounts to offset construction loans, notwithstanding its knowledge that the funds were to be held in trust for the benefit of subcontractors and suppliers, and certainly by extension and knowledge, the surety. We will see how that turns out. It happens to be our case, and we argued it before the Supreme Court last week. We expect a decision in the next few weeks. Then finally, we have insurers. That is the focus of today's discussion on the surety's right to assert claims against CGL policies and if there's sufficient time, build a risk policy. As the issue relates to CGL policies, the bonded principal and the obligee are usually named as insurers. As such, claims may be made which implicate CGL insurers of the bonded principal and obligee, subcontractors, material men, and others. Indeed, other policies may be available, such as uh, d and uh, design professionals E&O car- coverage, principal officers and directors D&O coverage, and fiduciary coverages for employee defalcation. I will note at this juncture <clears throat> that the rights of exoneration and indemnification may in some cases be used against a principal CGL carrier for defense and indemnity purposes. For example, where the surety has been sued by the obligee The principal CGL carrier may have a duty to defend the surety due to the principal's contractual and common law obligation to exonerate and indemnify the surety. Comes under Merrick Construction Company uh, versus Hartford Fire from uh, Louisiana Court of of Appeals. Uh, The surety may not necessarily need to be named as an additional insurer. In Western World Insurance versus Traveler's Indemnity, a case at Florida, the surety was entitled to recover from its principal CGL insurer, a judgment paid under a performance bond, even though the policy excluded liability assumed by the insured under a contract. And a surety may be entitled to recover against its principal CGL carrier for costs it incurred in completing the project. That is a Fidelity and Deposit Company of Maryland versus Hartford Casualty uh, from the District of Kansas in 2002. However, as you can imagine, not all courts agree, so you need to check the law of the jurisdiction in which you find yourselves. As a practice pointer, you need to be sure to obtain and examine all relevant CGL and other policies to determine what, what rights the surety may be entitled to assert against CGL insurers. As another practice pointer, Note that the CGL coverage is important not only for the surety, which has sustained losses as possible sources for recovery, but also to the performance bond surety, which undertakes to tender a completion contractor or a takeover surety all in order to protect itself from the course of completion of the project. Now getting in a little bit to the meat of the CGL policy is a very esoteric concept sometimes. Uh, The CGL policy provides third-party liability coverage for property damage and bodily injury. It is imperative that the specific language of individual policies be closely examined in policy interpretation. And as a practice pointer, particular and early attention needs to be devoted to a CGLs and other policies, notice provisions, which may lapse if the principal, the obligee, or surety do not comply on a timely basis. Now, the CGL has a pretty broad insuring agreement that sets forth the conditions under which the insurer will defend and or indemnify the insurer. The insuring agreement is then subject to numerous exclusions that limit the coverage, as well as definitions of key terms that may also effectively narrow the coverage provided. The extent of coverage can also be narrowed or broadened by endorsements or riders to the policy. Now a 1994 CGL policy begins with the following insuring agreement. We will pay those sums that the insured becomes legally obligated to pay as damages because of bodily injury or property damage to which this insurance applies. We will have the right and duty to defend any suit seeking those damages. We may at our discretion investigate any occurrence and settle any claim or suit that may result. Now, this, re- this insuring agreement refers to bodily injury, but our focus pretty much will be on property damage, given the role of um, uh, performance on surety. Note that the sums claim must be those sums that the insured becomes legally obligated to pay as damages. In other words, CGL insurance covers sums the insured owes to others. It does not cover losses suffered by the insured itself. In addition, the insurer has the duty to defend from suits for which the insured may become legally obligated to pay damages because of property damage within the coverage of the policy. The duty of defense is broader in application in that the insured need only show the potentiality of coverage for such legal obligation to pay damages in order to establish the insurer's duty to defend. In order to prove coverage, the insured must show at a minimum property damage or bodily injury, caused by two, an occurrence resulting in three, legal obligation to pay damages. Depending upon the precise text of the policy and the state law governing the policy, the insured will perhaps have an additional burden to show the existence of conditions precedent. The most important of these is, as we noted before, notice to the insurer. The burden then shifts to the insurer to show the existence of exclusions or other affirmative defenses to coverage. We will discuss some of these definitions and exclusions for a contractor's liability for construction defects. On the property damage concept, uh, CGL policy covers property damage caused by an occurrence. Property damage is divided definitionally into two categories, physical injury to tangible property, including all resulting loss of use of that property, and b loss of use of tangible property that is not physically injured physical injury is tangible property uh, physical injury to tangible property may occur from an identifiable event at a specific date and time or it may result from a gradual event such as water seepage or soil settlement and then construction defects resulting from poor workmanship do not in and of themselves constitute property damage however Defective work can cause property damage and damages to the materials uh, involved, damages property, uh, can cause property damage when it damages the materials involved, damages property surrounding the materials, or results in a loss of use of the property. The general view of the courts is that the CGL policy does not provide coverage for economic loss resulting from defectively produced work product. The definition of property damage is one means by which the CGL policy carries out its goal of excluding coverage for liability resulting in purely monetary losses. The definition does not include economic losses such as lost profits, loss of anticipated benefit of a bargain, and loss of reputation. While while lost profits and other economic losses are not within the scope of property damage, Loss of use of property is a form of property damage. That comes out of Sheets versus Brethren Mutual uh, from the state of Maryland. The Court of Appeals of Maryland applied loss of use coverage to cover an insurance liability for a third party's loss of use to his property. There, the insurance who had sold their farm were sued by purchasers for negligent misrepresentation of the condition of the septic system, which had broken soon after the property sale and it deluged the property with effluent. The cost of replacement of the septic system was not covered by the CGL policy because it was solely an economic loss, but the insurance liability to the purchasers for loss of use of the septic system was covered by the the CGL policy as property damage. The occurrence concept, uh, a 1994 CGL policy defines occurrence as an accident including continuous or repeated exposure to substantially the same general harmful conditions. Accident is not defined in that policy. Courts have taken widely divergent views of what constitutes an occurrence. In some states, such intentional acts such as assault and arson can fall within the definition of occurrence. The different interpretations result from the manner in which different courts view the foreseeability and timing necessary for an event to be termed an accident. There is an inherent tension in determining foreseeability. On one hand, courts are reluctant to extend coverage for all losses due to negligent performance of construction work because holding that poor workmanship constitutes an occurrence comes close to converting a CGL policy into a performance bond. On the other hand, of course, if no negligent act can be an occurrence, then the policy of little or no use. Therefore, in determining if an event constitutes an accident and thus an occurrence, most courts look not to the act itself, but to the injury resulting from the act. Those courts fall into two categories, with some courts utilizing a subjective test, while others take an objective approach. The subjective approach is given, a given act is not an accident, and hence not an occurrence, only if the the actor actually foresaw or expected the resulting injury. In in contrast, courts with uh, applying the objective approach hold that the actor is chargeable with the degree of foresight, whether or not he actually foresaw the result. One court utilizing this test explained it in terms of the natural and probable consequences of an act. An event can only be an accident if it is not a natural and probable consequence of an act. So obviously it becomes clear that you need to consider consider the substantive law of the state in which you're operating. Maryland court's view of the meaning of occurrence serves to render such construction defect litigation, much construction defect litigation, outside the coverage of the standard CGL, especially as to the con- general contractor. This is because the courts view defects arising from poor performance as the expected result of poor performance now there are certain triggers um, and policy periods we need to be aware of cgl policies are typically issued for a specific policy period usually one year occurrence policies cover legal liability resulting from occurrences during the policy period while claims made policies cover only those claims made within the policy period regardless of the time of occurrence for occurrence policies, the general rule is that the date of the property damage or bodily injury determines the insurance legal liability rather than the date of the insurance action leading to such damage or injury. Uh, let me just put this here. I'm going to skip over some things because we've got a late start here. There are exclusions typically involved in construction claims, and there are a number of them which I will mention but not get into in great depth because of the time element here, that the CGL contains numerous exclusions that narrow the coverage provided therein. The exclusions relevant to the issue of construction defects can be collectively characterized as attempts by the insurer to exclude coverage of the business, that the, the business risk that the insured will not live up to its contractual obligation to perform its work. The burden lies with the insurer to prove the applicability of coverage exclusion the exclusions are complicated enough in a vacuum and can get even more difficult when real-life facts are applied accordingly it is useful to keep several general rules in mind when analyzing exclusion issues first in general there is no coverage for the repair of faulty work done by the insurer second in general there is no coverage for damage to that particular part of the project being worked on unless the damage results from another part of the work. And third, there is no coverage for defective workmanship performed by the insured that does not damage other property. Now, there's exclusion A in the 1994 policy, which uh, excludes injury or damage that is expected or intended from the standpoint of the insured. And that basically imposes a subjective test. A second um, exclusion, B is contractual liability. And the policy excludes coverage for, in this case, uh, property damage for which the insured is obligated to pay damages by reason of the assumption of liability in a contract or agreement. This exclusion does not apply to liability for damages that the insured would have had in the absence of the contract or agreement or assumed in a contract or agreement that is an insured contract provided property damage occurs subsequent to the execution of the contract or the agreement. Solely for the purpose of liability assumed in an insured contract, reasonable attorney's fees and necessary litigation expenses incurred by uh, or for a party other than an insured are deemed to be damages because property damage and bodily injury uh, provided liability for such uh, uh, party party or for the cost of that party's defense has been assumed in the same insured contract. And two, the attorney's fees and litigation expenses are for defense of that party against the civil or alternative dispute resolution proceeding which damages to which the insurance applies are alleged. Um, there is uh, two particular types of uh, exclusions which are of uh, particular relevance to contractors and they are the exclusions J5 and J6, collectively known as the business risk exclusions. Exclusion J5 excludes from coverage that particular part of property on which the insured or its contractors or subcontractors working if the property damage arises out of their work. The exclusion typically applies where a mistake in performance causes damage resulting property damage caused by the mistake would be covered, the damage to that particular part that caused the loss would not be covered. One commentator provides the following example. An electrical contractor causes a fire while working in the mechanical room that triggers the fire suppression system building wide, causing widespread water damage. The exclusion applies only to the electrical components in the mechanical room damaged by fire. The rest is pretty much covered. Exclusion J6 excludes property damage to that particular part of property that must be repaired or replaced because the insurance work was defectively performed on it. One combinator provides the following example. A concrete subcontractor improperly mixes a concrete batch resulting in a section of the foundation that cracks causing a shift in the structure. Structural components supported by the faulty area are damaged. The section needs to be demolished and re and major repairs are needed to the rest of the structure. The re is excluded, but the damage to the rest of the structure is not. Uh, let me see here. Exclusion K, I'm not going to get into it in great depth, is the insurance product, provides that the coverage does not apply to property damage to your project arising out of it or any part of it and goes to your product. Um, I'm sorry, but I recognize we only have five minutes left. Exclusion L deals with the um, insurance work and does not apply to property damage to your work arising out of it or any part of it and included in the product's completed operations hazard. This is not to suggest that all, or in fact, any of such defects will necessarily be covered by the CGL. As the Court of Special Appeals in Maryland has pointed out, exclusion clauses do not grant coverage. They limit the scope of coverage granted in the insuring agreement. Um, Exclusion N deals with impaired property. And then um, the exclusion has been widely criticized as overly complex and unintelligible, probably much like uh, a lot of this stuff. Some observers comment that it follows from the definition that impaired property cannot encompass any property that has been made less useful due to physical damage because such damage cannot be ameliorated solely by repair or replacement of the defective work or product. It should be noted that capability of restoration is a necessary element for the insurer to prove to show that this exclusion applies for impaired property. If repair or fulfillment of the contract will not serve to restore the use of the property, the exclusion should be inapplicable to such property. Now, brief word on whether or not CGL policies cover consequential damages. And there is some commentary and case law that uh, says it does. And of course, (laughs) uh, there's competing uh, commentary and case law that says it does not. But uh, for example, construction delay and loss of use, liquidated damages, construction impact, relocation and storage costs, to name a few, but this one struck me as interesting. The insured's indemnity obligations to others, such as the insured's surety on a performance bond, may be covered as a consequential damage. Of course, that is gonna be highly dependent upon the jurisdiction in which uh, the surety faces uh, any litigation or claims in that case. Uh, the few courts that have upheld denials of coverage for consequential damages have been confused have often confused whether the claim damages constituted property damage with the operative question of whether the damages were because of property damage um, so it, it requires a very large and thorough analysis uh, to determine whether or not consequentials are in fact covered um, Before I open up the line for any questions, I wanna let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, December 12th at 1230. Surety Today occurs every second Monday of the month. And then the next upcoming event in the surety world, of course, is the uh, reconstituted midwinter meeting in January January 18 through January 20, 2023 at the JW Marriott in Washington, DC. And once again, I apologize for the technical glitch that got us going uh, slowly today. Uh, Does anybody have any questions? Not hearing any. I uh, appreciate your time. And uh, if you do have questions or want any follow-up, please feel free to call me or send me an email My telephone number is 804-362-9531, and my email is rpledger at wcslaw.com. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.